This is Max Hedrum. Hello? Anybody home? Hey! Our generation may not remember the moon landing, but we remember moon boots. If you owe a few cavities to candy cigarettes, learn your adverbs from schoolhouse rocks, burned your shins on a hot middle slide with sharp edges, exploding pop rocks for science, and you still want your MTV, then this podcast is for you. Dancing with Myself is dedicated to the decade of excess, the 1980s. So pull up your leg warmers and let's get physical. I'm Heather and you're listening to Dancing With Myself. Comebacks. The 1980s was a big time for comebacks. Retro was in and faded pop culture heroes returned to the limelight in droves as aging baby boomers became nostalgic. Andy Warhol returned to the limelight amid a new frenzy for pop art. Painter David Hockney, who raised eyebrows in the late 1960s with his homoerotic poolside images, became one of the most wealthy and collected artists of the time. Dennis Hopper, best known as the hippie director of Easy Rider back in 1969, became a mainstream Hollywood hero after appearing in the cult hits Blue Velvet and River's Edge. Cher was reborn as a movie actress, winning an Oscar for Moonstruck in 1987. She also resurrected her recording career. Tina Turner emerged triumphantly from Ike Turner's shadows, strutting her stuff on stage in videos and in movies. Aretha Franklin returned to the top of the charts, and 1960s heartthrob Tom Jones broke into video with his version of Prince's Kiss in 1989. The aging and ever-changing singing group Jefferson Airplane re-emerged as Starship. The Beach Boys, John Lennon, and George Harrison all returned to the top of the charts. Pop music of the late 1980s began to resemble that of the 1970s, with Hart, Queen, Cheap Trick, the Bee Gees, Boston, and Aerosmith all scoring huge hits. Meanwhile, Reagan-inspired nostalgia and a renewed taste for style and elegance made old-time crooners such as Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and Tony Bennett popular again. Golden Age movie actors, including Henry Fonda, Don Amici, Catherine Hepburn, and Jessica Tandy came out of retirement to capture press attention and Oscars. After a slump in the 1970s, Disney became the most profitable Hollywood studio, resurrecting the careers of stars such as Bette Midler, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robin Williams. Let's talk about Steven Spielberg. He was a one-man hit factory throughout the 1980s. His signature movie, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, broke all box office records, earning $367 million in the United States and almost twice that amount worldwide. Video sales brought in another $400 million. The success of E.T. was so staggering that it was difficult to remember that the movie was intended to be just a sweet, winsome tale of a lonely boy and his alien friend. It was equally hard to believe that just a year earlier, Spielberg had directed the action-adventure movie Raiders of the Lost Ark for George Lucas and brought in $242 million in revenue. Spielberg received Oscar nominations for both movies, but failed to win for either, indicating that Hollywood establishment respected his hit-making ability, but not his aesthetics. 
Spielberg went for broad effects, big emotional responses, and awe-inspiring visuals in a filmmaking style that many fans and critics likened to the imagination of an overgrown child. Some applauded his evocation of an earlier, grander, and more innocent movie era, but his tendency to amplify his themes and messages, to imagine everything for his audience, led to a chorus of criticism. With his screen adaptation of Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, in 1985, most critics complained that Spielberg had turned an original and uncompromising work of African-American fiction into a big, dumb Disney movie. Movie critic Dave Kerr called it Alice Walker and the Temple of Doom. The movie had 11 Oscar nominations, and Spielberg received an award for it from the Directors Guild, but he was passed over for an Academy Award for Best Director. During the 1980s, many yuppies pursued law and medical degrees, believing they could have lucrative careers in those fields. At the same time, the number of students studying for liberal arts degrees steadily declined, while enrollment in business schools boomed. The MBA, a master's of business administration, began to be touted as the yuppie degree, a passport to high pay and rapid advancement in corporate America. Hearing stories about 26-year-old investment bankers making six-figure incomes at Wall Street firms, would-be yuppies and droves mailed their applications to Harvard Business School and the Wharton School of Business. And hey, if you weren't accepted by the most prestigious schools, you could earn the degree at many other business schools throughout the country. Enrollment in business schools, having doubled in the 1970s, increased dramatically each year in the 1980s. In 1980, 55,000 graduate students in management degrees were awarded. In 1985, there were 67,000, and by 1990, the number had risen to 77,000. Moreover, only 3% of those degrees were awarded to women in 1971. By 1989, one-third of all business graduates were women. During the 1980s, the NBA was said to have sex appeal. Some joked its letters stood for making it big in America, In 1984 alone, according to Forbes magazine, 200,000 students were pursuing MBAs. Karen Siegler, a student at Columbia University, noted, In New York, there are so many MBAs on the market that the degree no longer gives you a competitive edge. Yet even while business leaders began to complain about an MBA glut, many yuppies considered the degree a prerequisite to success, and the MBA continued to boom. 